welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Good to know that you will quickly maybe not believe, okay? So here's what I want to say. I don't hate Santa Claus, okay? I'm not a complete Scrooge. It's not a complete, like, Justin hates everything that's joyful situation, I don't hate Santa Claus, all right? Are we clear that what I'm about to say is not because I hate Santa Claus? But the ironic thing is that Santa Claus and the Elf on the Shelf, uh, which is kind of popular if you're not a parent, don't worry about it, it's the same thing as Santa Claus, but smaller and longer terms. There's something really funny about the fact that they are like the dead opposite of what Christmas is about. Okay, so listen, I don't hate Santa Claus, but I did say low-key Santa Claus is kind of the opposite of everything that Christmas is about. Let me explain, let me explain what I mean, right? So what do we know about Santa Claus from sort of popular culture, the Santa Claus that we see at the mall, right? He knows if you've been bad or good, right? He knows everything that you've done all year round, and what does he do? If you've been good you'll get nice things. If you've been bad, you'll get a lump of coal. You know, when I was younger, I used to say, you know, like a lump of coal or socks. But as I've grown older, right, there's a certain point that you get to in your life where you go, socks? Like, like a good pair of, man, I want a good pair of socks, right? It's where Santa Claus, like the bad things he gave you when you, when you were younger, all of a sudden you're like, no, I could really go for a couple of really nice pair of socks. That'd be great. Right, but so, so Santa Claus, he knows everything about you. He knows when you've been bad or good, and he's going to reward you based on how good you've been. What's interesting, for those of you who are here this morning who are Christians, is that this is the exact picture that your friends, your family, and co-workers who don't know who Jesus is, this is what they think Jesus is. What the average person thinks Jesus says and teaches is, I know everything you've done, so be good for goodness sake. And I'm going to reward you based on all the good things you've done, and I'm going to punish you based on all the bad things. The picture that your co-workers have of Jesus has more in common with Santa than it does the Bible. And I think the reason why we have sort of made Santa and the elf on the shelf into a thing is because it affirms what our culture already believes. It affirms this idea, well, before I move on, I want to say something to all you parents. If you use elf on the shelf, if you do that, that's fine. I don't care. Right? I understand that there's a means to an end in parenting, right? That sometimes you got to do what you got to do to keep your kids sane when there are Christmas trees under Christmas gifts under the tree like don't don't come to me and like oh man my pastor that dude hates elf on the shelf and yeah, that's awful what kind of terrible humbug is he right no no do what you got to do and yet at the same time our cultural understanding of Santa Claus of the elf on the shelf kind of goes in one of two directions right when people think about Santa Claus they either think well on the whole, I've been pretty good this year. Santa Claus is going to bring me nice things because I have been reasonably good. 
So Santa Claus, bring it on. Give me my stuff. On the other side, some of us sort of look at it and go, I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care about anyone else's expectations of how good or bad I am. I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? I saw just this morning when I was scrolling through social media, somebody said, yeah, well, yeah, I've been bad, and Santa Claus isn't going to bring anything, but that's okay because I have enough to buy my own gifts. Right? We sort of have this idea that I can do what I want because I don't need some guy in a red suit to judge my morality and determine what I should get for Christmas. I can take care of it on my own. What's interesting is that those attitudes, I'm good enough, I don't care what anyone else says about me, are the same attitudes that we not only have about Santa, but are oftentimes the attitude that we have about God. And what I want to suggest to you this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, is that what Christmas has to say about the gospel of Jesus is far more beautiful than anything that Santa Claus could ever teach us. It is far more incredible and freeing and culturally subversive than anything we could imagine that we normally associate with Christmas. Because what most of us do is shortchange the beauty of Christmas. I want to read a passage to you from Galatians that sort of sums up all of Christmas in a really unique way. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Galatians 4. If you don't, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen in front of you. And I'd ask that you would stand as we read God's Word together. St. Paul says this to the church of Galatia. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. City Church, this is the Word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, the, the understanding that we bring into our ideas about Christmas bleed over and tell us what we really think about God. Most of the time, the way that we approach things like this is, God is going to, to judge me, and if I've been good, if sort of the scale of my life ends up tilted towards the good, then I'm good, and I get to go to the good place, right, as they say on TV, or if... You know, that other person in my office who isn't so good. That's the way we normally sort of envision things. But what Paul shows us is something much bigger. Paul is talking to the church at Galatia, and the church at Galatia had a problem. They had these people in the church who were saying, no, 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 no. Look, Jesus is great, but if you really want to be a solid Christian, you have to do 
everything that the Old Testament says. You need Jesus plus all of this additional law-keeping. And Paul comes to them and says, no, you're completely misunderstanding the point of what all of those laws and rules of the Old Testament are. And Paul makes this argument that the law is our schoolmaster. It's our tutor. It's interesting how, uh, as kids grow up, that there are different slogans, there are different things that kids say that are really local, right? Like, I remember when I was, like, in middle school, the big thing was, you got schooled. When somebody got proven wrong or somebody got beat in a sport or whatever it was, it was, you got schooled. And to my knowledge, like, that did not exist anywhere outside of my random pocket of northern Tampa, right? In fact, we even developed it into the, like, oh, he's the bus driver because he took you to school, right? This, this same thing has happened. My kids' school has this really strange thing where they say, when somebody gets proven wrong, they say, facts, right? Like, you know, teacher says, hey, open your page to 30, your book to page 32 for the story of Silas Marner. And some kid will be like, oh, it's on page 33. Oh, the teacher just got put in facts. Like, put in facts is grammatically terrible. Not, I don't, it's just so localized, right? Here's the point of the law. Just like uh, my sort of colloquial thing when I was a kid, just like my son's colloquial thing, the idea of getting schooled, getting put into facts, this is actually exactly what Paul is talking about. The purpose of the law is to show us that we don't have it together. See, because God's standard for law-keeping is absolute perfection. If you want to earn your way to God, the way to do that is absolute perfection in action and in attitude. Good luck with that. Right? And in fact, they come along and, and they said, well, I haven't murdered anybody. And Jesus comes along and says, you realize that when I wrote that, if you hate somebody, you may as well have murdered them. And you can almost hear people going, well, uh, well, uh, you sure that counts, Jesus? They said, well, I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. Not once. And Jesus comes along and said, if you've lusted, same. Oh. God's standard is absolute perfection. And the point of the law is to be our tutor. It's to be our, our schoolmaster to show us that we can't do it. That we can't get on God's nice list. Now, for those of us who think that we're on God's nice list, one of two things is the case. Either one, we don't quite understand what the Bible's talking about. We're not listening. Because the Bible standard is perfection. Or, we're lying to ourselves. I think more often than not, that second one is the case. Because any self-righteousness on our part, any, uh, any of us holding ourselves up going, look what I've done, is in reality self-deception. Because what we know to be true when we're quiet and honest is that we 
have not been perfect in action and in attitude. And Paul says that the law is like a schoolmaster. He uses the example of the son of a rich family, who the family says, you're 10 years old, you don't get to inherit all the money yet. You don't get to do whatever you want yet. You're going to have tutors. You're going to have trust fund administrators who walk you through what life is and teach you how to live. The law moves us along and teaches us that we can't do it on our own. He says it needs to do that because we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he means by this, if we're using this sort of Santa language, is that all of us, by instinct, are trying to get on someone or something's license. It is hardwired into us as humans, ever since the fall in the garden, that all of us are trying to prove ourselves to get on somebody's nice list. Whether that's through a religious system of doing all the right things, whether that's because we want to prove that we're worthy to our parents, whether that's because we're trying to fit in with a group or try to be accepted by other people, whatever it is, we're all working, striving, grasping to be on somebody or something's niceness. And Paul says that is the elementary principle of this world, the thing that all of us have in common. And he uses another word for it here in the passage. He calls it slavery. Whose opinion are you a slave to? That's bad news. But the good thing about this story is there's good news too. Because he says that at just the right time, at just the right time in our lives, when we realize our brokenness, at just the right time in the history of mankind, Jesus came. And he came born of a woman, born under the law. If the law was our schoolmaster that showed us that we couldn't do it, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he did it. That every law of the Old Testament, even the obscure ones, even the ones about you can only eat animals that chew the cud and have a split hoof, but if they don't have a split hoof and chew the cud, you can't eat them. But if they don't chew the cud and have... All, these, all of those laws, Jesus kept perfectly. And the reason that Jesus kept every single one of those laws perfectly was because you and I can't. Because you and I failed to do the things that were written in the law. And because of that, it says that Jesus was sent, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law. Paul is kind of mixing his metaphors. He kind of goes from the idea of a child who is an heir, and then he uses this language of redeemed. And the, the idea here is that redeemed is the price that you would pay to free a slave. You see, the death of Jesus is what frees us from slavery to other people's nice list. The death of Jesus redeems us and pays the price 
for what we've done. But it gets better. Because not only are we redeemed by Jesus, but this passage tells us that we are adopted by God. This is sort of the amazing thing about Christmas. We often think about the fact that the God of the universe came down and was born as a baby. Right? And we always talk about kind of the squalor of the manger, right? Jesus was born in a stall, right? And it was not like this silent night that was kind of sterile and clean like most of our nativity sets. It was like a dirty, messy stall that smelled that, right? And we kind of get that picture of kind of the awfulness of what the manger must have been like. But I think what we sometimes forget is the contrast of all that Jesus left. Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And all the pictures that we have of heaven are pictures of beauty unimaginable, of true joy and pleasure, of freedom from pain and from tears. And Jesus leaves that. Jesus leaves everything that heaven has to offer. But what's amazing is that because you and I are adopted, everything that Jesus left behind to come to earth is everything that you and I get to inherit if we believe in Him. The amazing thing about Christmas is because Jesus left heaven, you and I can gain it. Because Jesus left the ultimate beauty at the right hand of the Father, you and I are adopted and made children of God. And if we're children of God, then we are heirs to what He has given us. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He obeyed the law perfectly. And then He died the death that we have earned so that He could give us new life as sons and daughters of God. This is the story of Christmas. It's not a story of earning. It's not a story of doing enough right things to get on God's nice list. The story of Christmas is a story of getting something you don't deserve. The story of Christmas is we're all on the naughty list. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, I will change you from an orphan to a son. So where does that leave us? Here in St. Petersburg on Christmas Eve. I think if we hear this and we begin to believe in what Jesus has done for us, not just taking away our sin, but giving us adoption, as His beloved children, I think it begins to work itself out in a few ways. I think the first way that it works itself out is the way that we turn to God. In this passage, it says that He's given us the Spirit of His Son so that we can cry, Abba, Father. Abba is sort of, for Jesus' day, the most familial and loving name you could have for your dad. Right? Uh, it's, it's Daddy. It's Papa. It's whatever that, that affectionate name that sort of your cultural background has. And when we live as sons and daughters, as adopted children of God, 
that is how we turn to God. Because most of us, and this is so true in my life, when I sin, when I do stuff wrong, my gut level instinct is to, to sort of, Justin, try harder not to do that. Work more. Be, be better. Stop it. And I, and, I, and I turn to myself and try to fix myself. And God says, no. Turn to me. Call me Papa. Call me Daddy. Turn to me to change your life. Don't keep trying to fix it yourself. Think about, think about the orphan in like every Christmas Hallmark movie of all time. What's the orphan trying to do? He's trying to change his life. He's trying to pull himself up by his bootstraps. He's trying to fix whatever's wrong with himself. How many times does our life with Jesus look more like the orphan than the trust fund kid? City Church, you believe in Jesus. You're the trust fund kid, not the orphan. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to pull yourself up. You need to begin to live into what you already are. You don't have to keep striving to get on other people's niceness. You are already accepted by God, not because of how good you've been, but because of what Jesus did for you. You don't have to be insecure. You don't have to be constantly worried. Are you proving yourself? Are you doing enough? Because Jesus has done that for you. And you are absolutely secure and accepted by God. Let's pray.